want to talk to you today about how to make an eternal impact. How to make an eternal impact. And we're going to read something Jesus said in Matthew 6. This is at verse 19, page 981 in the Bibles which will be in your chairs. So Jesus said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Twelve years ago, on a, on a seemingly ran, random uh, Sunday morning, I found myself in, in a school sports hall. Uh, and I was sitting on a, a very uncomfortable plastic chair. And that's just where our church happened to meet. And as I sat there, I saw, I saw our pastor walk up to start his talk. And he said nine words which completely and utterly changed my life, actually. He said, we're going to see what Jesus said about money. And I remember being a bit irritated by that and uh, feeling like, well, this is going to be a short talk. And also feeling a little bit kind of defensive because I didn't really like the idea that the church would tell me what to do with my money. I kind of thought, like, who does he think he is, like, talking about that? And so I was kind of, like, feeling a bit defensive. My, my, my plastic chair felt a little bit more uncomfortable. I was feeling mildly irritated. But then as he spoke, I started to be captivated by what he had to say. And I started to get this feeling that my life might never be the same again. Even as he spoke, I found myself pulling out a scrap of paper and starting taking notes and then starting doing calculations and then taking decisions about how much I was going to give. And by the end of the talk, it was like a weight had been lifted off my shoulders, like I'd been walking in fog and it had suddenly cleared, like I'd been walking in the dark and suddenly someone had handed me a torch. Because if I'm honest... In the couple of years prior to that, I got a little bit lost. I, I didn't grow up with much money. And actually, in my first year working as a barrister, I, I, to my surprise, I earned three times more than my dad had earned at the pinnacle of his career. And I suddenly realized I was out of my depth. I didn't really know what to do with this money. I didn't know how to handle it. And I was immersed in a culture which was shaped by money and wealth. And without me even realizing it, it was starting to shape me. I'd started to see the world through the lens of my resources rather than seeing my resources through the lens of my faith. I had plenty of information, but what I needed, desperately needed, was wisdom. And it was so freeing to hear someone say what Jesus actually said about this subject. Because I had no idea. I had no idea that he said anything about it. I had no idea that almost half the stories Jesus told, 16 of the 38 parables, concerned money and possessions and our attitude to it. That Jesus encouraged and challenged people in this area because he knew it was so important to our relationship with God. And I'm so thankful of all the places I could have been that morning. I was there in that sports hall in East London because those decisions I took then enabled God to give me a new freedom and joy. They hugely blessed my life and they opened up for me opportunities I could never have hoped for. And what I found was that when your eternal perspective shapes your earthly decisions, you get the best of both worlds. 
So we're going to look at what this passage has to say to us. And I actually believe we have an opportunity today uh, to make decisions which shift our destinies, which unlock blessings and enable us to increase our impact on this church, this city and this nation and this world. So the first thing we see is that your treasure follows your heart. Jesus says where your treasure is, there your heart is. The reason Jesus talks about money is not because he thinks money is important. He thinks you are important. You are his passion. Your passion is what you're prepared to suffer for. And Jesus was prepared to suffer and die for you. He cares about you. And he knows that your attitude towards money is one of the most important things about you. Because money is intertwined. It's interconnected with every aspect of our lives. It affects our career decisions, our lifestyle choices, our relationships relationships. It tells, it reveals things about us, our passions and our priorities, our hidden hopes and fears, and even our loves. When I worked in litigation, we used to have this saying, follow the money. Follow the money when we're in a trial. Follow the money. See where the money is flowing and trace it. And when you find where it has gone, that will tell you something significant about the people involved in this case. It will tell you about their motives, hidden or articulated will tell you about what drives them, what might have motivated the events in question. And if you want to know what you love, where your heart is focused, follow your money. If you want to know what you value, look at your bank statement. It won't lie. It will tell you things, tell you what your treasure is. What is that thing in your life which, if you had it, would make everything else worthwhile? Maybe a relationship or a family or a promotion at work or a particular career. A house in a certain place, access to a certain social set. Money tends to lead to those things. And we can store it up in the hope of finding those things. Significance, acceptance, a measure of control and security in an uncertain and insecure world. But ultimately... They don't give us what they promise. Jesus says, don't store up treasures for yourself where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. It seems the very things we use to try and solve our feelings of insecurity are themselves inherently insecure. When I was 16, I had to do work experience for a week. And I was very excited because I managed to get a work experience placement in a lawyer's office, a smart lawyer's office. And to be honest, I had never been to a lawyer's office in my life. I had, uh, hadn't really seen a lawyer before. I had never met a lawyer. So I didn't know much about what I was stepping into. But what I knew was that it was important to wear a suit. So I went to uh, the Arndale Centre in Luton, to Top Man, and I tried to pick out a suit. And I, I, I didn't know what lawyers wore. I'd never seen one. So I didn't really know what I was aiming for. But I found this stunning beige suit. Um, it had a kind of, kind of like a cutaway collar. It didn't really fit in the right places, but I thought it looked perfect. And so I bought it, and on the Monday morning, first day of work experience, arriving at the smart lawyer's offices, I walked in, I sat in the reception, I was greeted by the senior partner, and I was wearing this. I mean, it must, it must just have been really confusing for him. I mean, the poor guy. I mean, if someone arrives for a week's work experience wearing that, you're like, is there an Indian wedding somewhere? 
Like, why? But then even then, it wouldn't quite fit. Like, uh, uh, does he think he's going to come and work as a porter at a hotel? But even then, it's not quite the right color. In no sense is that a suit. You would wear that. And, and the thing is, I, no one said anything. No one said to me, you know, in the hundred year history of this law firm, no one has ever wear a beige suit and certainly not one that looks quite like that. Um, you might want to change it. So for five days, I came in, walked around, met people wearing that suit. I think we've had it up long enough, if that's okay. I slightly, um, um, I, uh, I went to court in it. I met clients in it. I went into the cells in it. No one said anything. When I was in the room, I'm sure when I was out of the room, they talked about little else. But no one said anything to me. And so at the end of the week, I thought the week had gone quite well. And I thought part of the reason must have been my suit. So it gave me a great confidence in the suit. It was like my lucky suit. I wore it to job interviews. I wore it to interviews for university. I wore it everywhere I could. Huge confidence in that suit. So much so that a few years later, when I was at law school, I needed to wear a suit. And I thought... I know exactly the suit. I reached into my wardrobe to find my lucky suit, and to my horror, it was gone. I couldn't find it anywhere. I hunted through the house. Where is it? Where is it? Where is it? And then I came past the washing machine in our house. I looked down, and I saw what can only be described as a crumpled pile of beige. And I thought, what's that? And I I kind of picked it up, and it smelled basically like a nightclub on a Sunday morning, and um, it just reeked of kind of alcohol and cigarettes. And it turned out my little brother Paul, my dear brother Paul, had, had, had borrowed it a few days before on a night out. He'd spilled a whole load of beer and other things on it. He got into some sort of trouble. And he thought that what you do then is you put it in the washing machine. So he had crumpled this thing up and left it by the washing machine to see what might grow. And um, a few days later, things had started to grow actually in it. The suit was completely wrecked. It was gone in a moment, my lucky suit. Now here's the thing, I look back now and I shudder to think of the places I wore that suit. I can't, it's it's so embarrassing to think I wore it there. By the time, it gave me so much confidence. And I wonder what are the things which in the years to come we will look back at and we say, what was I thinking? Who was I kidding? To put my confidence in these things, these products, this lifestyle, this CV. To invest all my resources into those things because they give me some kind of confidence. When those things can be gone in a moment or they can waste away over time. What was I thinking? And it's as if Jesus would say, don't put your trust in those things. Don't put your trust in those things. Put your trust in me. Give up the feeling of confidence for an unshakable trust. Give up the illusion of safety for an unshakable, absolute security. You know, all treasure, all treasure will eventually require you to lose yourself to find it. Jesus is the only treasure who lost himself to find you. Fear is the enemy of generosity, but his perfect love casts out fear. It enables you to risk generosity. And Jesus wants you. He wants you to trust him. 
He wants your heart. And he knows when he has your treasure, he has your heart. Because your treasure follows your heart. But then the second thing this passage tells us is that you need to sow to store. Jesus says we have a choice. Either to store up riches on earth, which we can't keep, or to store up riches in heaven, which we can't lose. To invest what you cannot keep, to gain what you cannot lose. And Jesus emphasizes the difference between earthly treasure and eternal treasure. And you know, one of the greatest deterrents to giving is the belief that this life is all there is. And we are saturated with messages, societal structures, the way companies organize themselves the whole time, which try and tell us that. And in that context, temporary concerns can seem to shout loudly and it can be hard to hear the whisper of eternity, the whisper of heaven. You know, advertising companies pay, are paid billions, hire the brightest creative minds to try and persuade you that you have product-shaped holes, that you have desires that only a certain lifestyle can satisfy. Only if you spend all your money in those directions will you find happiness. But it's not true. You know, the most popular course right now at Harvard University is called How to Be Happy. And Harvard Business School released a research paper which assessed the different impacts of spending and receiving money to try and find if there was a positive correlation between having a lot of money and spending a lot of money and finding happiness. And they found they couldn't really find any sort of positive correlation except for the instant dopamine hit you get, save for in one area. Those who gave generously. So much so that for every $500 you gave, it was seen to have the same impact in terms of happiness as receiving $10,000. Dollar for dollar, a 2,000% increase in terms of the impact, in terms of happiness in your life by giving rather than receiving. Don't worry, it works for pounds as well. Um, <laughs> now, you, you, you want to know what it feels like to receive 100k? You just need to give 5,000 pounds. You might have always wondered, what does it feel like to win a million? Just give 50k, you'll find out. You know, what does it feel like to win 10 million? Just give 500,000 pounds. 20 million, a million pounds. I could go on. But you get the idea. Even in an entirely earthly sense, the 21st century research supports what Jesus said in the first century. It's more blessed to give than to receive. When your eternal perspective shapes your earthly decisions, you get the best of both worlds. And Jesus says, your earthly resource, when it's stored up, it will be destroyed or stolen. You're going to lose it. You try to hang on to it, you're going to lose it. The best way to store your resource is actually to sow it. The Bible says, as you sow, you'll reap. And I do quite like to demonstrate this. The virgins love it. Um, You know, as you're given seed capital, and you've got a choice, what are you going to do with that? Are you going to hold on to it? Or are you going to invest it? Well, the Bible says those who sow generously will reap generously. Those who sow generously will reap generously. Those who sow sparingly will reap sparingly. But it's really interesting, actually, when you think about it. 
Because we're sometimes tempted to hold tightly into what's in our hand. But when you hold tightly onto what God has given you, there's no room for increase. But God loves to give to empty hands. And as you give generously, he can bless you in every way. That's what the scripture says. And, you know, it, Jesus says when you say, as you say, you, know, you will receive a 30, 50, 100 toll return for the kingdom. Make room for increase. I found generosity is like a muscle. The more you use it, the more it grows. But it's still been hard for me to do it. Even when I thought, okay, God, I feel you're calling me to give something. I can find it hard to do it. I found there were barriers. Jesus is being blunt here in a way. He's been quite frank with us because he doesn't want us to miss out. And I found there are barriers to it. Firstly, it really felt like my money. You know, what's mine is mine. And this is mine. So it felt like my money. I was like, why would I give what's mine? And uh, I, I worked hard for it. I used my skill set to earn it. But then I realized, well, who gave those skills to me? Who gave me insight, ideas, open doors? Who protected me when I could have lost it all? And who supported me in my success? Who sustained me? There's no such thing as a self-made person. It's all gift. And then I think, well, okay, okay, well, in principle, of course I'll give. But I just don't think it's the right time right now for me. Uh, A lot going on at the moment. Maybe in a few weeks or a few months or a few years. Actually, maybe God. um, When I'm really rich, then I'll be really generous to you. How about we do that kind of... And uh, then I realized, well, if I'm not going to be generous with a little, why would I be generous with a lot? And it might be that some of you feel a real call to earn a lot of money and give generously to God. But that starts now. It starts today with what is already in your hand. And then I think, well, how much? I mean, there was a genuine question of mine, how much I'd heard about tithing. And, and tithing is a really helpful Old Testament principle, giving the first 10% of your income to God. And we're not under the Lord. Jesus refers to tithing. He approves of it. But he wants us to give our whole lives. And there's times when I found it really sacrificial to tithe. And there's times when my income has been larger and I wouldn't have even noticed the tithe going out of my account. Tithing wasn't nearly enough. But what I've found is if I start there, I want to give more. But if I leave it vague, I always give less. And then I thought it was too complex. I went up to my pastor in East London and I said, Tony, it's too complex, this whole area. Honestly, Tony, I'd love to give, but it's really complicated. He said, what do you mean, Steve? And I said, well, you know, is it tithing minus or tithing plus? Is it this financial year or this calendar year? You know, is it income or capital? Is it before or after tax? It's far too complicated. And he said, Steve, are you asking what's the least you can give and still be a generous giver? I said, yes. Oh. He said, he said Steve, just give something. Just start today and then see where it goes. And you know what? I did that. And what I found is I loved it. And I really wanted to give more and more and more. And then sometimes I thought, well, why the church? Why the church? But then I realized that, you know, the only people who are ever going to give to this church are you and me and a few other people here. And then God gave me a new love for the church. Showed me again that the local church is God's appointed plan for the transformation of this city, this nation, and the world. There is no plan be. And then to be at this church, which is changing this nation through planting into cities, 
We planted a church in Derby in September. Already it has 120 people on its alpha course. They don't even have a heating system yet. They haven't had out hot water bottles and blankets, but people are there to find out about Jesus. We planted a church in Kuala Lumpur. In the last few months, 60 people have been baptized. This is happening all over the place. And then to have the privilege of being here and investing in the lives of over 500 children, growing their love in Love for God, their faith in God. To have the opportunity to invest in hundreds of young people, in hundreds of youth, grow their confidence in Jesus. Just think what's possible in each of their lives. To equip a generation of students with the vision to be all they can be for God and see him change wherever he has called them to be. To equip 20s and 30s with the conviction that Jesus is Lord of their life and Lord of their workplace and Lord of their relationships and Lord of this city. To see families restored, to see marriages reforged. I've spoken to a number of couples in the last week whose marriages have been reforged through this church. To see the care For the elderly and the poor and the vulnerable and the prisoners and the homeless. And then to be at this church, just to happen to be at the church which birthed Alpha, this global ministry, this gift to the global church. 24 million people around the world have done Alpha. Do you know what I find exciting? Right now, in Aleppo, which has been at the center of one of the most brutal civil wars in the history of this earth, where they're still dropping bombs. Right now, in Aleppo, there's an Alpha course running, and people are coming along to find out about Jesus Christ. And that is the sort of thing that I want to give to. But then I'd look around, and I'd think, well, the lights are working not too cold this church seems to be doing okay I'm not sure it really needs my money and sometimes that was because my, my capacity to give was, was relatively small and I think you know even if I stretch and really try and make a difference I'm not sure it's going to make an impact I'm, I, we're stretching today and sometimes I think is it really going to make an impact and sometimes my capacity to give has been so disproportionately large I thought I might swamp the church with my resources. I didn't want to give it a whole new set of problems. But the church does need your money. And you need to hear this today. Whether your capacity is great or small, your spiritual need to give money to the church is far greater than the church's financial need to receive it. Your spiritual need to give is far greater than the church's financial need to receive, whether your capacity is great or small. Don't miss out. There's a spiritual element to this. There's a spiritual battle in our world, in our city, and over our own hearts. And when you give, you release your heart for all God has in store with you, and you release the resource. It's like a win-win. And it really makes a difference. It seems like Jesus is saying we can convert our earthly assets into something that will be described as treasure in heaven. Something which brings joy and glory in heaven. And it can be hard to think about that when Jesus talks about treasure in heaven because we're not sure exactly what that will look like. But what you invest in eternity is never lost. I mean, I want you to imagine that I... Is your $60,000 question on a Sunday that I made an offer to you. I offered you, it's 
roughly what this is, $64,000. And I said, you can have this, okay, if you'd like it. But you could also swap it for what's in this bag. And I'm your pastor, and I'm saying what's in this bag is more valuable than what's in this hand. Okay? Who would take the money? Be honest. Be honest. Hands up if you'd take the money. It's okay. It's okay. I'm not going to judge you. Hands up. Yeah, quite a lot. Okay. Who would take what's in the bag? A few more. Who doesn't really like putting their hands up in church? But <laughs> what about if I told you that this is a particular kind of US currency, a particular kind of dollars, which is now defunct? It's worthless. But it's valid. I'm going to accept it for this one transaction. Which you be, would you be tempted to take then? And what about if I told you? It wasn't just me who said this was more valuable. But Jesus Christ himself was standing here and said, this is more valuable. What would you be tempted to do there? See, what Jesus is saying is we have the opportunity to invest our, heavenly, our, our earthly riches in heavenly riches which will never fade. You know, I, we don't know exactly what it looks like, but no one is going to get to heaven and go, oh, I'm disappointed in that. You can trust what Jesus says here. You know, when I think of treasures up in heaven, I think about the church as a family. I don't know if you know this, but look around the room. These are your brothers and sisters. Um, like it or not, that's who they are. Um, they're right here now. But the fascinating thing about the church is you haven't met lots of your brothers and sisters yet. And lots of your brothers and sisters that will be haven't even darkened the door of a church yet. They're out there and you haven't even met them. One of the extraordinary things is that we get to help them come home. When I was 15, there was a split in the heart of my family. A disagreement became a dispute. And the result was that my elder sister left the family. And it was probably the most painful experience of my entire life. The, the weeks turned to months, turned to years. And if you've experienced something like that, you know it's almost like a bereavement. All the pain, confusion, denial, anger, and despair that go with it. And I cried out to God for him to do something. And I tell you, if I could have fixed it with the money I had, I would have done. I tried a few things, but nothing helped. And a year became two, became five, became ten. And when we met for Christmas, for weddings, for funerals, for births, it was like there was a part of us missing. And I I, had basically given up hope. I knew that apart from a miracle, there was no hope. The gulf was too great. And then 14 years later, on the 30th of January, this week in the year, just gone, my other sister, Susie, just decided to take a day off work for her birthday to take her kids ice skating. She went to an ice rink in Milton Keynes, of all places. And they did a bit of skating and then they had a little bit of a break. And she was standing on one edge of the ice rink and she looked across to the other side. And she caught the eyes of a woman on the other side. And they just looked at each other for a few moments. And then she suddenly realized she was looking into the eyes of our other sister, who she hadn't seen in 14 years. 
And then she looked to her left. And she saw her children playing with some other children. And they didn't know it, but they were cousins playing together. And you know, through that miraculous meeting, God broke through. And my family has come back together. This Christmas, we met together and we celebrated and we laughed and we joked and we told stories. We were all there together. And the one who was lost was refound back at the core of our family. You know, when I think of heavenly treasure, I think of how priceless that is. It's a miracle when anyone comes home into God's family. It's only possible by the blood of Jesus, by his cross, by his resurrection. But when I think of heavenly treasure, it's seeing in heaven my brothers, my sisters, celebrating with them in heaven. With all of you, with many more who haven't yet been to a church, to see them there. And to know, yeah, God did it, but we got to be a part of it. You know, in my life, my finite life, my fleeting life, like a drop in the ocean of history, I got the privilege of sharing in the salvation of those who, for whom Jesus gave his life. That we got to be part of the, saving those who Jesus died to save, seeing those come into his home. That we were connected to it. You want to talk about treasure? I'll tell you what I think eternal treasure is. It's people who just in the last few months here have come to know Jesus Christ. People like Cameron and Nathan and Tess and Catherine and Saskia and Emma and Nathan and Lils and Rowan and Harry and Joe and Christian and Alex and Keith and Gideon and Freddie and Rachel and Matt and Andrew. That is treasure. It's treasure. I dare you. Give to God today and trust him to multiply it. Trust him to use it to bring sons and daughters, brothers and sisters home. Trust it. Trust him with it that he will breathe his breath on it and use it in ways that will blow your mind. Use it in ways that you couldn't even imagine. You know, on the final day, lots of things that loom very large today will fade away like shadows at daybreak. Relatively few things will remain. Invest in those things. Sow into those things. Sow into treasures in heaven. Because I tell you, we could be anywhere. But we're here today. In this city This church, this place, this time, we happen to have been called to a church which is in one of the most strategic cities in the world. An international crossroads. We had the privilege of seeing thousands of people come to know Jesus, of sowing into the lives of thousands of people. And that's what I want to be. I used to lean back on gift days. Now I'm leaning in. I may be able to do a lot. I may be able to do a little. But I want to know the figure. Tell me what it is I can do. Will you join with us? Will you sow here? Will you invest in eternity? In Jesus' name, amen.